Hi, I'm Mark Bureau, and you're listening to the Walter Paisley Movie House. Welcome to the Walter Paisley Movie House, where we celebrate the little engines that could not. Our music is by Jonathan Harmon, and I am your host, Dylan Rohr. Today's episode is brought to you by Mushnick's Flower Shop. Tired of weed eating? At Mushnick's, our weeds eat you. Today's guest is a director, writer, producer, editor, and educator who has worked with many legends of the industry. Legends who have loads of cult cred to boot. Names like Jessica Harper, James Earl Jones, Mark Metcalf, Tracy Walter, Jack Palance, Donald Pleasance, Martin Landau, Erlen Van Leep, Blue Gulliger, Robert England, Mark Patton, Kyle McLaughlin, Lynn Shea, Courtney Gaines, excuse me, Courtney Gaines, Danny Trejo, Matt Frewer, Rip Torn, Rebecca DeMornay, Michael Nury, Darren McGavin, Andrew Deboff, Moses Gunn, Jeff Fahey, Norman Lloyd, pocket Norman Lloyd, you guys, Robert Forrester, Joey Lauren Adams, and Harvey Keitel, just to name a handful. Starting his career in the early 70s which the much, with the much-lauded short film The Garden Party, he ended up working as an editor and then at the then-fledgling distribution company New Line. From there, he went on to work on some of the most talked about and interesting movies of all time. With his first three feature films, Alone in the Dark, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, and The Hidden being considered cult, cult classic essentials, with Freddy's Revenge regarded as one of the most groundbreaking and important horror films of its era. After his long and distinguished film career, he moved to North Carolina in 2004, where he initiated the motion picture program at Western Carolina University, retiring from the program in 2018. From West Philadelphia, born and raised, playing trumpet is how he spent most of his days. Please welcome the one and only Jack Shoulder. Wow, is Hi, that Jack. me? I'm, I'm very impressive. Oh, you really are. Uh, yeah, you know, the, I kept it short. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, I never felt I was doing that well, except for, for a few years. But uh, anyway, I guess in, in, in retrospect, uh, I did, did okay. I'd certainly say in matter of, of legacy, you've, you've certainly done well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was, I was fortunate, you know, yeah. uh, right place at the right time, a little bit of talent and, you know, not a great personality, but, but enough to get by. <laughs> well, let's, let's go back a little bit. Let's go back to your youth in West Philly. So um, I know you were uh, very much into music um and comic books I've, I've read in a couple different interviews with you um you enjoyed going to the barbershop to read the comics and oh wow you you yeah well i i was not a collector mm -hmm. uh but um all the barbershops had comic books and so you kind of rated the the barber by the quality of the comic books so <laughs> Uh, so while while you were waiting to get your hair cut, you know, you could you could sort of read three or four of them. Um, right. So so that was my so all the ones that were big in the 50s. Those are the ones that I mm -hmm. that I know. And Mad Magazine, of course. Oh, yeah. Mad. I mean, that's like I think every adolescent boy, when they discover Mad, it's like their world changes. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's like um, just understanding that suddenly there's a. Uh, everything can be made fun of there's nothing really sacred out there i see where you. where do you live i'm in indianapolis oh okay yeah so i just have to correct you that west philly is technically correct because mm -hmm. it was the western part of but west philadelphia is a neighborhood and okay 
and the neighborhood that I was in was called Overbrook. Okay. So, yeah, so I, that's actually I've driven yeah, I've uh, driven through Philly. That's my experience. Yeah. <laughs> well, you should. I I couldn't wait to get out, but now I love to go back. It's, yeah. It's a, it's a really pretty pretty cool place. I mean, it's got some some areas that are that you definitely want to uh, avoid. Um, uh, but it's a really interesting city, and uh, um, I'm kind of a bit of a foodie, and 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 the food scene there is great. And that's good. By man. the way, um, if any of your fans love a good cheesesteak and they have a local place mm-hmm. that they can get it, it's no good. <laughs> the only place you can get a good Philly cheesesteak is in Philadelphia, and then you kind of have to go to the right place. Right. Is it, I, I, is it Gino's? Is that the is that the name? Well, of the Gino's one? is Gino's is 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 one of them. Uh, but there's there's about uh, I don't know half a dozen great ones, mm-hmm. and and uh, uh, the guy who who is the head of distribution at, at at New Line, the fellow Philadelphian, we always used to bemoan the fact that you couldn't get a good cheesesteak anywhere but Philadelphia, <laughs> and so he decided to open up a cheesesteak place in Westwood in LA, mm-hmm. and everything was imported from philadelphia the rolls the meat the cheese everything was was from philadelphia and it still didn't taste the same (laughs) and and i i i was having a cheesesteak at a place called jim's which which is very good and um i asked the guy he said it was the oil but i can't believe it's just the oil what i think is it's the griddle that they've been making the cheese steaks on that griddle for like 50 years yeah and somehow that gets into it i don't know we had a place like that where i grew up i grew up in a small southern indiana town and uh we had a place that the burgers were unmatched right Right. it was that griddle and then they had a fire they had a grease fire that caused a lot of damage so they had to replace a lot of things never been the same the the foods just never tasted the same i think the griddle has has something to to do with it and also just just to give you an idea of what Philadelphia is like where I was growing up, which mm-hmm. may account for part of my sensibility, is um, uh, when I did Alone in the Dark, uh, New Line um, was still a pretty small company. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and you know, they had just produced one other film sort of as a, as a co-production. This is the first one on their own. And, and they... At, at that time, they didn't do big national openings. They just opened films territory by territory. So it would mm-hmm. play like, you know, New York, New Jersey, Philadelphia, maybe. And then it would move on Cleveland, you know, go in the Midwest. And they'd have like, you know, 20 or 30 prints because they were expensive. And so it was playing in Philadelphia. So I said, why don't you send me to Philadelphia? You know, like local boy does good. So they didn't want to pay for that. So I said, look, you know, a train ticket's like $25 for a round trip, you know, and so anyway, so I went and they arranged for me to, to, to meet the, called the sub distributor in, in mm-hmm. uh, Philadelphia to take me around to do publicity, and uh, they said, well, uh, where do you want to go go for lunch? There's this nice place and that nice place. I said, well, there was this place next to my high school called Dave's that, that made steak sandwiches. It was a steak shop. Uh, wasn't the best. But I thought it would be fun to kind of go there just just for old times' sake. Sure. Uh, and it was across from the high school, and I was, you know I hadn't seen it in ages, and and so I I went and the place was was wasn't very busy, and Dave had gotten enormously heavy. 
he would look like he weighed like three or four hundred pounds. Uh, anyway, uh, so they 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 told him who I was, and you know, he asked for a picture, and we gave him a poster that he put up, and I signed it, and all the rest of that. And I said, you know, there was this guy that that used to be one of the cooks who made the steak sandwiches, and I always admired him. He was this really good-looking young Italian guy, you know, very handsome, beautifully combed hair. And he had like a white stuff and there was like not one drop of grease on it. And it looked like he had starched and ironed it and didn't have any grease. And he would have one hand on his hip and he just kind of flipped the stakes. And I thought he was like the coolest guy. And he said, oh, oh, well, you mean Donnie? And, uh, and I said, yeah, yeah. I described him. I said, yeah. I said, what, what's he doing now? He said, oh, well, he, he's now Donna. He's a showgirl in Las Vegas. So, <laughs> you got to keep that grease off if you're going to do that. He, uh, <laughs> that apparently while he was flipping steaks, he, he met a lion tamer and he ran off with the lion tamer. To, oh, that's uh, awesome. So anyway, that's where I come from. That's a fantastic story. I like that. So. You're in Philly growing up. Were you into movies as a kid, or is that something? I know. I know you. You've said in uh, when you were in Edinburgh, Scotland, you you started to really kind of look at it more as a and with an industry mind. But as a kid, were you going to films? Well, yeah. I mean, I went to to, to movies like everybody did. You know, the Saturday yeah. matinees and you know double features. What was your they, neighborhood you know. theater that you went to? Uh well, there was one called The Win. And, uh, you know, Saturday mornings, you know, my, my mother would drop me off. It was near my grandmother's house, mm-hmm. you know, with a couple blocks from my grandmother's house. And she, she dropped me off and it would be full. And, the, you know, they'd have like a hop along Cassidy short and yeah. then they'd have, uh, you know, some movies. And uh, when, when I got a little bit older, there was another theater that, that specialized in just showing foreign films, a lot of British films, mm-hmm. like, um, you know, Peter Sellers comedies and, and, you know, those sorts of English movies. Mm-hmm. It was a smaller theater. And, um, and, you know, when I got a little bit older, I always enjoyed going there. You know, it wasn't, wasn't that crowded and they were really interesting movies. And it was actually the, the place where I saw The Wizard of Oz oh, cool. uh, when I was really young, which scared the crap out of me. Um, that was the first time uh, was, I saw it was on the big screen, too. Yeah, at a, at a revival house, it was great. Yeah, and, and and then the other thing that I saw there was uh, uh, um, first Ing- Ingmar Bergman movie. You know, I walk wow. in and there's this guy sitting on the beach playing chess with death, and I thought, "Holy cow! You right? can actually do this in a movie!" And you know, I was totally captivated. You That's know, an it, incredible it, film. It is. It's just, it's, I, there's a line in that movie that has stuck with me since the first time I saw it. It's when they're playing chess, he says, we make an, I'm going to lose it now. We make, we make an idol of our fears and call it God. And I, I just really? remember when I saw that wow. line, I'm like, I don't know what that means right now, but someday I'm sure that'll make sense to me. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, anyway, so that, that, that kind of started me on a, on, on a whole other track, you know, and then, then I started to, look for foreign films and art films and you know mm-hmm. films that were more than just just a good time yeah so i mean i i you know uh 
I really like literature. I was an avid reader and, you know, I ended up majoring in, in literature, English mm -hmm. literature at, at, at university. So, uh, you know, that, that, that kind of fit in with, with all that, you know, because it is sort of literary in a sense that, mm -hmm. that, that it, you know, it tells a story. Yeah. Yeah. So you were into music as well. And I know you were, you were original intent was classical musician. In fact, I read a quote from you where you'd said that uh, you, you wanted to be a classical mu musician, but it's a difficult life. So you decided to become a writer and which made me, <laughs> it made me laugh. <laughs> oh. It's much easier to be a writer. <laughs> well, you don't have to like, um, you know, hit a high C. Right. Yeah. In order to be a writer. <laughs> um, I get that. Although, Although I actually stuck stuck with the trumpet, you know, for for a lot of years. Mm -hmm. um, I, Is it true I, you're on the score for the the score for um, what was it? Twelve Days of Terror, the the movie about yeah. the shark attacks. Oh, that's fantastic! Yeah, I read that, but I couldn't confirm it. Well, there's a there's a couple little tasty trumpet solos in there. Okay, if, if you hear a trumpet, there's a scene where they're um, uh loading a victim of a shark attack onto a train and uh, there's a sweet little trumpet solo that's that's me i i also oh, wow, played cool. on supernova which no um you know which is a film that i i took over from walter hill and then yeah francis coppola took it over from from me yeah and um and, and i hired the, the composer and i hadn't i'd stopped playing for about 15 years and so i said to the composer since it was a big orchestra I said, how many trumpets are you writing for? And he said, three. And I said, could you write a fourth part that's not too hard and I'll start practicing? And he said, okay. And so I, I sat in with, you know, some of the best trumpet players in the world, I guess. Wow. Uh, that was fun. What would you, what, how would you compare the intimidation of that to the intimidation of, let's say, your first day on set for your first feature, let's say. You're, you're walking up to Donald Pleasance and about to tell him what to do. Where would you put your intimidation factor between those two? Uh, well, in, in the days when I was playing really well, I had a lot of confidence, mm -hmm. um, uh, toward the end of my playing career, which was three or four, five years ago, maybe, uh, we were playing one, one piece that had like a, a big, difficult trumpet solo and, and my hands were shaking so much. I couldn't tie my bow tie. Took yeah. me about five minutes to get it tied. <laughs> uh, you know, people, people, people would would uh, would say to me, uh, you know, for the premiere of of my film or the cast and crew screening or something like like that. They said, you know, are you nervous? And I said, no. You know, <laughs> you never played trumpet in an orchestra. You know, right. I mean, if you have a hard <laughs> thing to come in, you can really embarrass yourself. And then yeah. you know, you you tense up and your breath tightens up. And if your breath isn't good you can't hit the note and it's yeah. you know so i'm a musician as well and i i it's it's one of those things where when you're on stage making music where it's just that you feel so alone in that moment that i, I understand those nerves yeah well i mean it's also you know one of the great feeling i mean i love to rehearse more than i love to perform you know because wow. i got to play the music and there wasn't any 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 pressure well again you know in the days when i was really you know when i was younger and i didn't have much fear and and, and i was pretty good I, I i did enjoy performing yeah 
But yeah, uh, yeah it's a little scary. So you you decided to get your degree in English Lit. What led you to go to Edinburgh? Were you there on a study program? Yeah, I, uh, it was a, a year abroad, and okay. um, and um, <clears throat> they had um, some of the most famous um, uh, teachers of of English literature. Sir John Dover Wilson was there. He was who 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 like all the editions of Shakespeare. He was mm -hmm. you know the, the most famous living Shakespeare expert. And there's another guy who was the, the most famous living Alexander Pope. Yeah, famous, yeah, uh, poet. Uh, uh, but but they had all uh, they had all retired at that point, and so oh. none of them were, were actively teaching. And and I fell in with with some bad company, and and, and ended up um, smoking a lot of hash and dropping acid a few times. Well, I think we've all been there. And, so. <laughs> and I actually failed failed my class the english class i mean there was a thing you know i said uh tell us what this poem means and and and, and i wrote well i know what it means i don't feel like telling you <laughs> <laughs> means too much to me than to prostitute myself for a grade so <laughs> ah youth <laughs> It's a it's a beautiful city. I've been able to visit there, and it is a gorgeous yes, is. city. And gorgeous. I can imagine it's it, in your twenties. It's probably very easy to go get lost in there. And oh, fantastic! Yeah, beautiful, yeah. beautiful place. <clears throat> yeah. Well, it was there that you you kind of made a switch looking into films, um, and you've talked a lot in other interviews about the French New Wave, a lot about the auteur theory. Um, Sydney Lumet, I know, is a is one that you love. What is it about those films that spoke to you so much at that time? Well, um, they were humanistic films. Um, I mean, um, about I mean, they were like great great novels that you know they were about um, the human condition, um, you know, and 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 those sorts of things. And um, you know, I I. I found them like I found literature, you know, very, mm -hmm. very moving. Um, you know, I didn't understand a lot about how movies work, you know, the, the way I do now. But, um, you know, but but I found that uh, that they really moved me, you know, that mm -hmm. I, when I was walking out of the theater, I felt different than I felt when I walked in. And. Um, uh, and, and also, you know, uh, Renoir, you know, those, those movies at that time, they were, you know, 30 years old, yeah. uh, which is older than The Godfather is now. Right. You know, <laughs> uh, uh, but, uh, you know, but I, I, I could relate to them. And, and then, you know, the, the films of Truffaut and Godard, I mean, yeah. that was like, that was right what was happening, you know. It was a whole new way of, of looking at film and, you know, like Jules mm -hmm. and Jim, uh you know about this romantic trio and you know it was kind of like like what life was like so yeah i was very attracted to that you know identified with those movies where were you seeing these at a lot of revival houses i know corman uh, i think it was corman who who was the big one to start bringing these in as a distributor bringing these to the states and he was getting was it him? revivals yeah yeah uh well yeah i mean I mean, after I graduated from from college, I I moved to New York, started getting some work as an editor, mm 
-hmm. And there were, you know, a half a dozen revival houses. And and I basically just, you know, saw everything that was playing. So that was my, those are my film schools, you know? Right. Uh, So I ended up seeing a lot of films that if, if it was now and it was Netflix, I never would have seen because I never would have picked them. Right. You know, but uh, things like there's a, a great Polish director called Andrzej Vida. Yeah, I wrote him down. I knew you were really into him and I've, I I enjoy him as well. Yeah. Have, have you seen Ashes and Diamonds? Uh, Masterpiece. That one I haven't. I've seen. Oh, well, that's, God, that's his, so many his of most his famous. Films. A Man of Marble, Man of Iron. Uh, but, yeah, you know, Ashes and Diamonds yeah. is just it's a, a masterpiece. Um, and one of the great directors of, of actors, I think, in the history of, of film. But I mean, probably never, never would have seen his his films. Uh, uh, you know, some of the the more unusual Hungarian directors. Uh, yeah. So yeah. So it's so interesting. That was, That's a it's a topic that comes up on this podcast a lot. Is the idea of um, you know back in back in the day you'd go to a movie theater and see something just because it was there you may not even know if you're going to like it or not and right. you know now it's it's i call it disposable media because you can just go see a little bit and think oh i've got it now and and leave it be uh there was certain something to that thrill of the chase there to go out and find this movie you've heard about and, and keep chasing down that director and trying to find their films right right yeah well it was always interesting when you saw a movie by someone interesting uh alain Rene, you know and then you'd say well gee there's an, another Rene film i've never mm-hmm. seen that i gotta go see it i mean it's kind of like um uh, you know dealing with with uh, film students um you know a lot of those those older films none of them have have seen them but uh um yeah well anyway that you know that was how i really learned how to make them you know mm-hmm. i didn't go to film school, you know, yeah. uh, in my teaching job, I was the only full professor at the university who'd never taken a single course in the subject, which, <laughs> which, which didn't make me too popular among people who were <laughs> spent 15 years getting a doctorate and then were getting paid half of what I was getting. <laughs> I wasn't too popular. Uh, you earned it. It's, you know, I, I, there's a lot to be said for, for the school of hard knocks and, and to start out in editing without, I, I the everything I've read it just kind of like you just stepped in and said oh yeah I could do that and then figured it out well yes that's that's pretty much yeah if if I really had a talent for anything I think editing I mean mm-hmm. I've you know I I was a very good trumpet player I think I was a pretty good writer but I I think editing I I really editing just editing brings together music and story music not necessarily in the sense of actual music but Mm -hmm. it works like music it occurs in time it has a macro structure a micro structure it has these beats and rhythms and a lot of stuff that people who watch movies are are not really aware of 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 how much that affects them you know they'll watch a movie and say boy the cinematography was really gorgeous or the costumes were really great but unless it's got really whiz bang editing yeah people aren't going to talk about the editing but but the editing kind of like pulls you along and um um when a scene i i've i've worked with a few editors who did who, who weren't like right in sync with me and the cuts and, and it all was fine 
But then if you take a frame out here and a frame and that and a frame here and a frame there, it's all of a sudden it's like a piece of music that just all the cogs just kind of click together and it just kind of flows better, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so I, so I always had a sense of what was well edited. I didn't necessarily know how to get there right away, but I would recognize when it wasn't there and, and I just keep going until I thought it looked pretty good. Yeah. And you were you were started cutting trailers for New Line um, when they were just a distributor at that point, and that's at Joe Dante. That's how he got his start as well. And it's the and I'm sure you've been asked. Well, I know you've been asked this question a thousand times, but I'm going to ask it again. But I'm going to try and go a little bit deeper with it. I hope the idea that that cutting a trailer becomes kind of a film school in itself. I I know it it helps to give you an understanding of film structure. What is it about finding, though, those golden moments, the things that you want to grab to draw an audience in, to make them want to see this film? What is it about watching a film over on looking for those golden moments that that sets your brain a little more in tune to how you're watching it? If that makes sense. (laughs) Well, I mean, mean, when, when you're cutting a trailer... Uh, particularly for for New Line back in those days, I'm uh, you know, it wasn't like you were trying to capture the essence of the movie. You know, if if there was a three second shot of of tits, yeah, put it that in, was good. Trailer <laughs> tits and tits and blood. That's all you need. Yeah, tits, blood. <laughs> you know, heads exploding. You would put that in the trailer. So, so uh, I mean, basically, what you were doing was was you were trying to tease the audience, particularly mm-hmm. with 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 new line. I mean, I, I never did trailers for anybody else. So, um, you know, I didn't have a trailer house, you know, it was, it, it was just me and, and new line and, and, and new line at that time was really Bob Shea and his sensibility. Right. So, um, so, uh, a lot of times the, the trailers would lie about what the movie was all about, you know, that it would, you know, uh, there were, there was a movie called, the working class goes to heaven by um, uh, it was some like leftist uh, uh, leftist Italian film director. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was this guy and he's working in a big factory and, and he loses a finger in an industrial accident. And he becomes radicalized. And he leads a huge strike. And it was, and so they, they, they retitled it from the working class goes to heaven to the character's name was Lulu. They, they, retitled the movie lulu the tool and they had me re- redo the the trailer so it seemed like a kind of a fun time you know that all <laughs> of the political stuff was taken out of there you know, like revenge for losing his finger and you know uh, it had it, it it had it had i mean if there was any any you know socially redeeming content we cut that out because sure. that didn't sell <laughs> Uh, but, but really what, what, what was interesting was to kind of see how things were done. Like, especially, I mean, if it was a really good movie, it was hard to do a trailer for it because it didn't have all these little pieces that you could throw in, you know, it would have a longer, more subtle storyline, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, um, but you know, if it was uh, a street fighter, with Sonny Chiba, right? Then you could pull out all these fights, and 
And so it was interesting to see how they made these things happen that never really happened just by editing, you know, it was sort of Eisensteinian editing uh, tricks. And, and I mean, basically you, you would take a hundred and some minute movie and you would take a certain point of view about mm -hmm. what it was about, which, which, as I said, wasn't about what it, the director thought it was about, but what the right. distributor thought would sell and, and remake the movie as a, as a two and a half minute movie, you know, yeah. That, yeah. that, that told a story, but mm -hmm. that told a different story. And so kind of seeing how these films were, were constructed was, you know, it was, uh, as I've said in some other interviews, it was like taking a grandfather clock apart and putting it back as a wristwatch. Yeah, yeah. You learn a lot about clock making. I I read where you were talking about that, just the idea of um, not just looking at that film as a whole and, and breaking it all down, but also uh, going back to your early point about the importance of editing, the scene not just the structure but the puzzle of it how you take all of those disparate pieces and put them together in a way that makes sense that that must really start to come become much more prominent for you in your head as you're editing these things down to trailers well yeah i mean i mean the the way that i would do it and i um you know professionally i was i was mostly editing now um non non-narrative non-scripted stuff you know um and and again you have all this material and you're trying to find a story mm -hmm. in that in that material you know i might find one story you might find a different story you know yeah uh but 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 trying to then tell that story in a way that the audience can get it uh you know one, one of the things working with students and seeing the mistakes they make is they tell the story so they get it but they don't necessarily tell the story, right. uh, you know, and their friends get it and their friends think it's terrific. And I said, well, you know, take it to the film school down the road and see what they, those students think of your film who aren't your friends mm -hmm. and, and would like to see you fail, you know? Uh, so, so that's, I, I mean, you know, someone once said that what a director really directs is the audience's attention. Uh, hmm. So, um, you know, that's, that's part of what, what you do. Uh, you know, and 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 the documentary stuff also really was was very um, helpful because you know I was raring to do narrative, but I wasn't getting hired to to cut features. You know, in in in, in L.A. most people are cutting narrative, but in in New York it was only like the top people, the people who were cutting features. You know, where the D.D. Allens and the Ralph Rosenblums of, yeah. of you know, these star, superstar editors mm -hmm. and um, and, you know, the rest of us were cutting other stuff, you know, and I I did, you know, like cinema verite kind of documentaries. And, uh, you know, it was really great because you learned how to make a story out of something that. Out of, you know, it was kind of found footage in a way. I mean, it wasn't found, but. Uh, you know, a lot of times they would shoot whatever they thought was interesting and not necessarily have a story. You know, it also, I could take any two pieces of film and cut them together and, and have it flow, you know, as opposed to whoop, what, what just happened there, right. you know? So, so I learned lots and lots of tricks about how to make stuff work. It's held me in very good stead when I, 
started cutting scripted stuff, which, uh, you know, was like the editing was, was a piece of cake compared, well, for the most part, compared to cutting a documentary where there was no script at all. Yeah. And it sounds like you just kind of had a natural knack for it to, to be able yeah, to jump yes. in and just kind of do that. Well, like I said, story and music. Were you on an old flatbed at that time? Uh, yeah, I was, um, I was, uh, my, my preferred method was a steam back. I didn't oh. like the cam. I really liked the steam back. The, the, the cam was, was what people in Hollywood used. And, and of course the movie Ola, mm -hmm. I cut yeah. a bunch of things. The trailers I mostly cut on a movie Ola, okay. which, which was basically, um, I kind of had a, I kind of liked it because Moviola has two motors. It has it has a sync motor that runs at 24 frames a second. And it has what's called a wild motor that that you can step on the pedal and it goes faster or slower. And the the, the wild motor always sounded like like my grandfather's sewing machine. He was a tailor. Kind of mm -hmm. sounded just like a sewing machine, you know. And also, uh, you know, you have these sprockets and uh, uh, you know the, and, and and this thing called intermittent motion. So the film kind of pulls down, then it stops, the shutter opens up, the light shines through, the shutter closes down, it pulls down to the next frame, stops, and this happens 24 frames a second. It's the same thing that happens in, in, a, in a movie camera. Mm -hmm. You know, the opposite takes the picture. So it was all very, and, and when you're editing, you're cutting a picture and a, and a soundtrack at the same time. They're both on yeah. 16 or 35 millimeter film and so so you can run them separately on either of these two motors or you could lock the two together and the way that you did that was you slid a bolt across uh, uh, uh there was a shaft and, and and you could have the bolt on on one side of the shaft and they would work independently or you could slide the bolt and this is when they'd send a man to the moon and we're sliding a bolt to, to right interlock the two heads so it was it was pretty pretty basic i i know that you've talked about how um with with alone in the dark uh when you were approached about doing that one by new line bob shea uh he had you know you you, you brought them a script that took place in new york in 78 during a blackout and that was too expensive so they wanted you to rewrite so you rewrote again to the, the plot that we're familiar with, but then you edited the burning and went back and did another rewrite. What, right. what happened with that editing process that prompted that? Well, I, I, I was never a big fan of horror films. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah. um, I saw all the creature features, uh, 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 you know, that were like the midnight or, you know, we play like late on a Friday or Saturday and yeah. Zachary or one of those. I was going to ask if you were a Zachary guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, we, we, we all watched them and, and they were very amusing, you know, and they weren't really that scary, you know, the mm -hmm. mummy and all of those, those bride of Frankenstein, all of those, those things. Um, uh, you know, and, and, and I had seen Friday the 13th, uh, I actually saw it with, with Bob Shea, you know, he said, Hey Jack, you know, uh, we got to see this film. It, it costs like under a million dollars and it's making a ton of money. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was, he was very impressed by that. Um, you know, but I really didn't deeply understand the, the genre and I really didn't fully understand like how suspense worked and things, things like, like that. 
you know, that wasn't really part of the documentary stuff. And, and mm-hmm. you know, with, with the trailer, you're not really building suspense. You know, you're just going bang, bang, bang. You know, it's, it's really surprised. So, um, so I learned a lot about how to build scares. And, 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 and actually, my, my trailer background came in handy because, uh, you know, there were some shocks and things like that and, and other things where, you know, these, these things were made in the editing. Like, I mean, there's this, this, this scene, if you, if you go on uh, YouTube, you, you can see it where the, these, these kids are out on a, on a raft. The canoe and scene. There's a canoe. Yeah. And this 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 canoe is just sort of like sitting there and all the kids saying, Hey, cool, there's a canoe out there. Let's, you know, and everybody you know, saying, Something's bad with that canoe. There's something wrong with that. You just don't, you know, you don't put the knife <laughs> on the table and unless you're planning to use it in, in act five or right. act three or right. whatever. So so they're paddling away. And then and then when when they finally get there, you know, this this guy jumps up with a with a, with a pair of uh, garden shears. Uh, you know, hedge clippers. Yeah. And, 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 and Tom Savini was doing the special effects mm-hmm. and he had this, he had a couple of these foam hands that were really look like shit. I mean, they, they, they were not well made. <laughs> they were just like, they almost look like the kind of things people use in football games. I mean, they were very crude <laughs> and he painted them pink. And, and, uh, there's a scene where one of the kids says no and he puts his hand up and then they had just a shot where the hedge clippers would clip these fingers and the fingers just flew off and if you use four seconds of it it was like holy shit this is you know you felt like you saw the kids fingers get chopped off right because it was so fit you just saw this thing that was the same color and general shape as his fingers go flying out of the frame. Yeah, there wasn't even blood, I don't think, but it was just this, you know, mm-hmm. that little, you know, four or six seconds of of of, of film. Um, yeah, there's a there's a, a series of films about editing, and Steven Spielberg talks about editing Jaws, you know, and he said he always yeah. wanted to put more. It was so hard to shoot the shark. That, yeah. that he always wanted to try to get like every last frame of it. And, and his editor, who was very, very good, very experienced, well-known editor. It was, uh, say, no, no, no. Was it um, D.D. Allen who did that one? No, it wasn't. It wasn't D.D. Allen. Um, God, she was a famous editor and she edited. Most, That's why most I was thinking D.D. Allen. Was doing it for, yeah. for, for well, D.D. Allen worked out in New York. Yeah. Um, uh, Verna Field. Burnerfields, Burnerfields, yes. Uh, Save me a Google. And 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 Spielberg said she would always say no, 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 you can't. And and he, you know, and they put one more frame in, it wouldn't work. And he took the frame out, and it worked. Yeah. But so I learned how to build suspense and how to build scares and make the scares work. And um, I didn't really come to this formulation until later. Uh, well, maybe maybe. Maybe I did, you know, uh, there's this book called Hitchcock Truffaut that was sort of yeah, my, yeah. My, my textbook, if you will, where Francois Truffaut talks to Hitchcock about all of his films, every single film yeah. that he made. And, and, you know, he's very knowledgeable. Uh, mm-hmm. Francois Truffaut w- was a film critic and, and, and a huge uh, Hitchcock fan, which, which I am also. I, I've seen all of his films at least once yeah. And, yeah. And, and many of them more than once. 
And Hitchcock in that book talks about the difference between suspense and surprise. Bomb under the table. And, right, right. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so for your listeners, surprise is two people are having lunch. Uh, a bomb goes off under the table. That's surprise. Yeah. Suspense. Uh, someone puts a bomb under the table. Two people sit down to have lunch. Yeah. And and when you've got suspense, you can draw it out. You can really drag it out. So uh, this the scene in uh, in Alone in the Dark where the, the babysitter Bunky is on the bed, mm-hmm. and 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 Martin Landau is under the bed with a huge knife, is one of those scenes. And and I I wrote that scene and put it into the script after I had done the burning after I cut the burning, uh, yeah. and and in fact, um, uh, uh, so she's making out with her boyfriend. For for those those few of you out there who still have not seen Alone in the Dark, which you really should see, it's Absolutely. it's really pretty good. It's a it's fantastic really good. film, and she's. She's making out with her boyfriend and then they hear a noise and the boy gets up and he goes and looks at the closet and you build up like there's somebody in the closet and then he opens up the closet door and there's nobody there. And then he goes to walk back to the bed and suddenly he's yanked. The hand reaches out and, and yanks him under the bed and she's on the bed and she's freaked out. And, uh, and suddenly a knife comes up through the mattress. Yeah. And so she, she backs and, 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 and anyway, this happens three times and she finally jumps off the bed. And so when I was editing it, uh, people at New Line said, this scene doesn't make any sense. She'd jump off the bed right away. She should jump off the bed right away. And I said, well, if she jumps off the bed right away, you don't have a scene. Mm-hmm. And, and the longer you could keep her on the bed, the better it would be. And they always wanted me to shorten. And I always fought with them and said, no, 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 you've got to keep it. And, and then, of course, when we tested the film, that was kind of like, you know, the, the, the scene that got the best reaction of anything mm-hmm. um, because it was pure suspense. Yeah. Yeah. It's well, I want to hold off before we get into that. I want to talk a little bit about a few other things. If that's all right. Um, I, I'd like to talk a little about the garden party. It's a beautiful uh-huh. little film. And I know you're originally, and I read this and it really, it tickled me. Uh, you were originally thinking of doing it, The Hawkswell by Yates. I did um, it. You did do I it. I actually you, did you, it. You it actually like managed wor- Okay. It was the worst idie that anybody's ever had for making <laughs> movies. Well, I am a, a, I'm a, Yates is, is possibly my favorite writer. My son's actually named after him. I, I just really? absolutely love Yates. Um, and I, what I read have that you I've been to like, Ireland. Yes, I've I've been to his house where Sligo? he wrote in the summers outside of Hout, and it's right. just amazing. Sligo. Yeah, it's incredible. It, yeah. it just to stand there and look out at the ocean. It's just like, well, no wonder he could write so well. <laughs> yeah, I was a huge Yates fan. I traveled all all through Ireland and visited oh, wow. know, a lot of the Lake Isle of Innisfree and. Uh, um, his his tomb right did you see mm-hmm. his, no, his I didn't. Tomb? no no uh cast the, a cold eye on life on death horsemen pass by it's lovely inscribed on his tombstone nice uh yeah so uh yeah it was a horrible <laughs> uh, to do a verse place <laughs> set in medieval ireland uh <laughs> at a at a boy scout camp 
uh, <laughs> near where I was in school with a bunch of, of people who had no idea. You know, we just ordered the equipment and then tried to figure out how to use it. And, <laughs> uh, uh, and it, you know, it was all in verse and, yeah. uh, with actors who were doing summer stock nearby. Oh, it was wow. a really bad idea. But it, it, it had this one little section where the, the hawk, who was played by a woman, does a dance. And I got this woman who was a ballet dancer. and She kind of did this dance. And that was all just edited. It was all kind of montage. And that was the only thing in the movie that was any good, really. Um, Is that available somewhere to be seen? You know, uh, you I have the a print of it. I, sh I should probably... <laughs> I should probably get it uh, transferred to. Uh, should probably get it digitized. That'd be really cool. And I'd like, put it, it up. Sounds cool. Yeah, put it up somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. So then you went to do the Garden Party, which I think if you went to high school in anywhere in the U.S., you probably read the story. Um, and it's a it's a beautiful story, and your adaptation is uh, i just watched it again this morning um you can find it on youtube um it was on pbs quite a bit when i was a kid um it's just so quiet and thoughtful um when you were making it i i imagine when you go on location to somewhere like that it it, it suddenly it just kind of changes the whole atmosphere for you as a director and probably for the entire crew Yes. Well, well, I mean, we made it for not a lot of money, mm -hmm. although quite a bit more money than anything else I'd ever done. I mean, we actually raised raised money. And the, the, the uh, producer, Paul Gurian, went on to do a film called um, Cutter and Bone uh, in, 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 in Hollywood. You know, a lot of it off off the strength of the Garden Party and. Um, we found these these beautiful locations. Uh, we got Beatrice Strait to be in the movie, who later got an Academy Award for mm -hmm. Network. For basically, she was in she was in two scenes in the movie, and there was one big scene where she lets uh, her husband uh, William Holden have it because he's having an affair with Faye Dunaway, and mm -hmm. and just based on really just on that one scene, she got an Academy Award. Yeah, for supporting actress. She's a great. It's an, that's an interesting film all of, overall because then ned Beatty also uh was got his for a small scene where you barely see his face uh, yeah well i mean it's if you watch i i watched the when when i started teaching i guess in like 2006 and i i watched the movie again i hadn't seen it since it came out i said oh my god this is actually predicted what's happening with television, yes, like reality TV and people melting down on, and all that kind of stuff. It, it was mm -hmm. prophetic. Plus, it's a brilliant, brilliant film. It is. Yeah. I mean, the the scene uh, where uh, Peter Finch goes goes kind of nuts and says, you know, stand up. And, um, uh, uh, what was it? I've had I'm enough. Ma I'm, I'm mad as hell. I'm, I'm mad as hell. Take <laughs> right and, and and all the windows open i mean it's a brilliant brilliant mm -hmm. film um well it, the garden party significant not only the cast is is pretty incredible when you look at it with with eyes in 2022 it was uh for a lot of people their first credit tracy walter mark metcalf and jessica harper um 
I, I don't think it was Tracy Walters or Jessica Harper's first credit, but it was certainly in the top five. And for Mark Metcalf, that was his first film. And oh. so you're you're getting all these young actors who are, um, as far as filming goes, inexperienced. Um, you're as a director, kind of getting your sea legs on still too. Yeah. When you're dealing with that, how much are you relying on your crew at that point? Well, I had a I had a cameraman who was very good, mm -hmm. so he was really helpful. Um, I I had a I I was very confident because I as an editor, and this is true of a lot of New York editors. I, I mean, like uh, you know, L.A. editors. Or like, sir, may I help you on with your coat, you know, <laughs> to the director. Um, uh, whatever you want, sir. Yes. Um, uh, uh, you know, when I was hired an, an editor in L.A., I would say, if we screened the dailies and I said I like take two and you, and you were cutting it and you decided you like take three, what would you do? And they would say, well, I would try to use take two. I would ask you if it was okay, you know. The guy I hired was the guy who would say, fuck you, I'd use take three. <laughs> He's the one I thought was the right one. And that was the guy that I hired. Mm -hmm. But in, in uh, New York, the editors basically thought the director's job was to fuck up their cut. You know? <laughs> uh, and that was certainly my my uh, feeling, yeah. that, that the cuts that I made were so good that anything that they did to change them would, would only make them worse. <laughs> Uh, uh, which may or may not have, have, have been true, but, but, but that was my attitude. So, so I, you know, I, I used to say that the reason I wanted to direct was I, so I could have good footage to edit because, you know, I, I edited those early, early films myself. So yeah. I had a very good idea of, of how to construct a film. Mm -hmm. And I, uh, you know, I, I, I made shot lists. I had the whole thing basically planned out. And then it was just a question of, of, uh, of, of executing mm -hmm. the idea. So, you know, having a good cameraman to, to help make the shot, you know, yeah. you take the concept of a shot and then make it into a really nice shot. Um, you know, the actors were, were good. I, I, uh, you know, I, I studied acting not to be an actor. Mm -hmm. I had no interest in being an actor, but to learn what the process was about and, he did some theater in, in college. You know, I still didn't feel that I was particularly good with actors, but I, um, I had a pretty good sense. I mean, if you're an editor, you kind of have to be a connoisseur of performance, you know, because you're going through and you're picking out, you know, what, what's the best, what, what's the best performance? What are those little tiny little moments that the actor has where they reveal something? Yeah, you know, because um, as 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 Hitchcock says, uh, um, bad directors show people talking; good directors show people thinking. You know, yeah. so those little little things where, where 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 the person says, "I hate you," but they really love them, and you find just that little tick or that little mm -hmm. something that just—it's like a tail in poker, you know. And and so so I kind of had had that, you know. It, it shows especially in the garden party where there are those moments of just silence and you're watching characters process uh, when she goes to see the body and you're, oh, you're watching yeah. her just process that entire event. It's the first time she's ever seen a dead body. And at that age for that to be your first time, is kind of rare. 
And so it's it, there's a lot going on in that scene, but it's so silent and it tells such yeah. a great little story in that moment. Well, yeah, and 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 uh, you know, someone might be tempted to put music in there. Hmm. Yeah, but I'm glad you didn't. It's perfect. It's it's so much more effective when you don't because the audience doesn't have this music coming in to tell you what you're supposed to feel exactly you just you just have to have to kind of think about it. well and also the way it, it it works is um the director of photography did did a beautiful job there you know and the body and the way it's lit and all of mm -hmm. that so it's it's her and then it's what she's seeing you know it's showing her her thoughts and you know what you what you think of of how she's she's thinking i mean this is this is the way film works i mean there's great great movie best years of our lives um yeah. william wyler movie yeah um and there's a scene where um uh, frederick march who has come back from from the army and he's, he's he works in a bank and he was in the infantry mm -hmm. there's another guy uh played by dana andrews who was a pilot and he's actually like a working class guy mm -hmm. but he was sort of a pilot whereas you know frederick march was was just an infantry you know yeah. sergeant in the infantry and there's a scene where he he um he's at the bank and this young farmer comes in who's a veteran who wants a loan and he to to improve his farm and he doesn't have the collateral and he's trying to talk Frederick March, he's representing the bank into giving him the loan. And it's a long scene, probably runs five, four or five minutes, mm -hmm. which is quite long. And the whole scene is just filmed on the back of Frederick March's head. You don't see his face. Mm -hmm. You only see the other guy's face. And normally you would cut to see him, Frederick March reacting to this line or to that line or whatever. And he never cuts to him until the very end. And so you're sitting there and after a while you start to say, I wonder what he's thinking. What, how's he, how's he taking this in? He must feel bad because, you know, he's not saying, you know, and again, suspense, but, mm -hmm. but also trying to get the audience into the head of the characters. You know? Yeah. It's uh, and this is just a complete tangent but didn't wasn't that another movie where there was a a best supporting actor award for somebody who wasn't even an actor um i believe that's the one it was an actual veteran who'd lost his arms yeah best uh, best years of our lives yeah i um, think he got a best supporting actor but I, I don't know his yes. name offhand but uh, harold his first name was harold and he had lost both of his hands in a naval accident. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and um, and and so he had these these you know what they had at that time were these kind of hook things. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, yeah, if if you haven't seen it, um, it's really a, one of the great American. It's a beautiful film. Art. It's a really beautiful film. Um, um, it, it's. A... Sorry, guys, we're just going off on movie trivia now. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, those are the kind of movies that 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 moved me, you know, because they, yeah. they were really about something. You know? and, and you were coming up. I mean, the Garden Party is 73. So that that's an era of the auteur in America. Um, Coppola and Sidney Lumet. And I mean, it's just 
movie after movie was coming out at that time that was groundbreaking and it's where the director was kind of the the be all end all of decision making on it and i'm sure that was a huge influence on you as you were coming through that and so go ahead i know go ahead finish oh i was gonna say so so when you get then into alone in the dark which was for new line that was their first feature release uh well not uh, as you mentioned their second but their first as a solo uh, production company when you get to a film like that and uh, you know you you've not only been working as an editor and filmmaker and dealing with the business on all kinds of levels throughout when you get to that point where now you're in charge and you're at the helm especially being younger in that position how much of it of the the confidence you have going into that is coming from uh well not just being east coast but also that confidence of youth as you're going in there well um i wasn't nervous at all you know um Mm -hmm. because i I felt like I knew how to do it, you know. Well, I'd also written, written the script, so so I'd already kind of made the movie in my head. That's part one with Jack Shoulder. Part two will be up in a couple of weeks. I hope you enjoyed it. He's a uh, film nut, obviously. He knows so much and all self-taught, which I think is wonderful. Please check out any of his movies if you haven't seen them surely you've all if you're listening to this podcast at least seen nightmare on elm street 2 but and alone in the dark i would hope but uh, the garden party is a nice change of pace movie to check out like i said in the podcast it's on youtube uh i do recommend it Mm, that's about it guys get back out in the world enjoy it while you can fall weather coming halloween's right around the corner When you're out there, take care of your servers because it's the Walter Paisley Movie House and we do not piss on hospitality. Talk to you next time.